electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. My mission is simple. To make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll be one of my friends just trying to make some money. My job is not to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Here's what the true bears, the ones who hate the market, never seem to get. When push comes to shove, a lot of people believe that things will go right. And that's how you get a daily today with the Dow gained 250 points. SP jumped 1.13%, and the NASDAQ just crushed it, going up 1.95%. Let me say right up front, the market shouldn't be going up. We have rampant inflation. Sell, sell, sell. Rates flying higher. Sell, sell, sell. The specter of companies missing estimates. Sell, sell, sell. A behind-the-curve Federal Reserve. Sell, sell, sell. They know nothing. And a non-zero chance of nuclear war thanks to the unhinged leadership of Vladimir Putin. So how the heck can we rally? Where did all the sellers go? For two weeks, we had sellers willing to go through buyers, meaning they didn't care if they sold stock below what the buyers were willing to pay. They just wanted out. Things are arguably worse now than they were back then. But the market's holding up better. Does that make any sense at all to you? The answer is yes, it does. If, and only if, You suspend your rigor and just have hope. Now, I will never endorse hope as an investment strategy, but when you zoom out, it's kind of an interesting mindset. Why? Okay, because when I got into this business some 40-odd years ago, the Dow was at 1,000, and now it's near 35,000. There were a lot of moments where the market went up, even though it probably didn't deserve to, given the inputs. But then we found out the inputs were wrong, or things broke a different way, and the rally suddenly made sense. Shh. Don't tell the bears, but you couldn't gain 34,000 points on the backs of false information and a too easy Federal Reserve. So let's take two weeks ago versus today. We know that every major inflationary input has gotten worse by the day, and we've now become seemingly numb to the slaughter in Ukraine that we're helpless to stop because Putin is crazy enough to go nuclear if the United States gets directly involved. Rather than mutually assured destruction or the mad doctrine, he's embracing Richard Nixon's mad men theory, where you act as crazy as possible, scare your opponents into staying on the sidelines. If things are worse than two weeks ago, then why is there more hope? Well, last week we had a Fed meeting where Jay Powell made sure everyone knows that he's poised to raise interest rates rapidly because the economy's overheated. The result, one of the greatest rallies in years. Then yesterday, Powell once again talked about inflation, saying he'd think about nothing, nothing of a 50 basis point 
double rate hike at the next meeting if it would help tamp down inflation. Now, initially, the market took this statement negatively yesterday, like Powell was saying he'd be willing to destroy the economy in order to save it. 50 basis points here, 50 basis points there. Pretty soon you're talking about real rate hikes. That caused us to get hit yesterday. But today, upon further review, hope, Wall Street reached a different conclusion. That was a conclusion that was more like what happened last week when the market roared after Powell's first rate hike. See, a week ago, there were plenty of skeptics. There were two camps. Those who believe that Powell could easily throw us into recession if he isn't careful, and those who believe that Powell's a big softy, who's simply too late to meaningfully stop inflation. The latter camp has zero respect for Powell, the man. I think they're dead wrong. But I'm in Jimmy Chill mode right now, so I won't bother castigating them. I'll just take it out on some of my more hateful Twitter followers later this evening. Now, though, there are a few, there are fewer skeptics. I think last week we saw a Jay Powell who recognized that things have, really haven't been going his way. We said that last night, remember? Yesterday we saw a Jay Powell who struck the perfect balance. He won't throw us in recession, but he'll still go to great lengths to stamp out inflation. He was forceful, albeit flexible. In other words, Wall Street now is a lot more confident in Powell's bona fides as an inflation fighter. That means he's taking off the extremes, though. The companies that have seen their stocks soar because of price increases, steels, plastics, papers, well, they better get used to a world where they'll have less pricing power, can't constantly put through those price increases. And the stocks that do well in recession, I don't know if you saw them today, maybe they're not as great buys as we thought. The drugs, sort of health cares, they all took it on the chin. This is a remarkable moment because it's not supposed to be this good. There should be more people saying that Powell will fail and he's a paper tiger. There should equally be people who say that this economy can't handle the brakes. But their silence, as measured by the strong 3-to-1 advanced decline ratio, is simply deafening. How can people be so confident that Powell won't crush the economy? Well, I think it's dawning on many of the biggest of investors that this economy is so strong that it can handle a series of rate hikes because so much of the spending we're seeing is related to the great reopening and the normalization of remote work that's finally drilled into their heads. That said, while I appreciate hope as a mindset, I'm not as confident as a lot of the buyers who are paying up at the end of the day. I suspect things simply aren't that rosy. We are seeing a level of enthusiasm here that to me feels unjustified. We shouldn't be going back to mentality where we like all stocks because so many of them will miss their numbers and so others will hit us with negative forecasts. However, it's clear many stocks that were stuck in a prolonged bear market have been sprung by Powell's comments. The former high flyers that have been obliterated since November by inflation fears have suddenly gotten a new lease on life. But here's the problem. Tons of those stocks just aren't worth much, regardless of whether Powell steers us into a soft landing or a hard landing. We've been saturated with awful merchandise, the greeds, the greedy men and women of Wall Street, from garbage IPOs to garbage SPAC plays. And these virtual albatrosses have weighed us down. They are millstone around the market's neck. And I think they'll go right back in the penalty box the moment we get more economic data that is hot. If the numbers are scorching, people realize Powell has to tighten more aggressively, and this group will get dumped. Why not dump it before that happens? If the numbers are bad, people start wondering what any of these newly minted stocks are really worth. Why not get out ahead of that? So let's recognize that this is a moment where Wall Street recognizes that Jay Powell is ready to use all the tools at his disposal to slow down the economy, giving us time to fix our supply chains, restock our inventories. One last thought that I think many of you have. If a company's doing really great, what the heck does it matter about the Fed? Why are you talking about the Fed so much, Jim? I sympathize with that view. Companies should be valued on their own merits. Same with strong sectors, as you will hear later in the show. But that's not always how it works. There are periods, extreme periods, where the economy gets so out of whack 
that the stock market itself becomes a pariah asset class, a source of funds for other asset classes. So an individual company's merit simply won't be reflected in its share price unless it catches a takeover bid. Given that the Justice Department and the FTC seem pretty hostile to mergers, I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for an acquisition to save you. So the bottom line right now, we need to bow down to the Fed and the forces of inflation. Anything that brings down inflation, including tough statements from Jay Powell, will make big institutional money managers more likely to buy stocks rather than sell them. For the moment, that's what controls the stock market. As long as the war goes on and the economy breeds inflation that soon few can afford. I'm starting the day going with Cortez in Texas. Cortez. Kramer, longtime follower, Cortez in McKinney, Texas. Thank you. Wanted to ask you a three-part question about the big company DuPont that's been around forever. Right. Do you do you think they have the strategies to continue to deliver to our shareholders? And uh, what about uh, the superb sales? Cortez, this is a really tough problem. I'll tell you why. We, we bought the stock very, very low for the Chapel Trust. And we told CNBC's investing club when it went higher, it's time to liquidate. Why? Because we just don't know how much more oomph there can be in that particular stock. We do think Ed Breen's doing a great job. We think long term it's fine. But short term, it is not the place we want to be. How about, oh, let's stick with Texas. Let's go to Carson in Texas. Carson. Booyah, Jim. This Booyah. is Carson. Booyah. Make sure to say hi to David for me. David Faber? Like I'm calling about. Yeah, Love David Faber. Love, Love him. Love on the street. Fabulous. Stock I'm calling about is CRM Salesforce. Got it in last year around 280. It's around 220 right now after being about 190 earlier in the month. Right. Do you think it can pull back? Given I tell the investing club that Salesforce remains one of my absolute favorite uh, companies. There are various times where this stock has just been horrendous. And those are times, like if you take a look at between 2015 and 2016, you would just feel this was the worst stock in the world. And then Benioff comes roaring back with a great set of numbers or a terrific acquisition. I would not sell Salesforce. Salesforce. I told the investing club, buy Salesforce. We need to bow down to the Fed and the force of inflation right now. That's what's working on Mad Money tonight. There is always a bull market somewhere. So could there be one in the ag stocks? I'm going to take a close look at the space. Then why can't Wall Street get a handle on what to do with Nike? I'm going to give you my take. And Bow's Health is preparing to split into three companies. And I'm learning more about the deal with the CEO. And why some big company doesn't go buy one of the divisions? Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand. 
NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I keep telling you that the menu of potential winning sectors has gotten spottier ever since the Fed decided to get serious about cracking down on inflation. Although on days like today, we can see that almost all stocks benefit from the possibility that J-PAL could put us on a course where inflation might be peaking. As I mentioned at the top, though, there are a couple of sectors that are so strong that it doesn't matter what the Fed does. And one of those incredibly strong sectors is agriculture. The war in Ukraine has created an explosive rally in ag, especially wheat. Given that Russia and Ukraine account for roughly a third of the world's wheat production, there's a real possibility that we could be looking at a global food shortage as this drags on. More on this later in the show. For now, though, I want to focus on what this means for the ag complex. Crop prices are insanely high. Corn's up nearly 27% year-to-date. Soybeans, 26%. Wheat, wheat, the fundament of what we eat is up 45%. We're going to go into more detail on wheat and corn later. Let me check in with Carly Garner, our resident commodities expert. But this should give you some idea of the magnitude of this move. So if you don't trade commodities, how do you play? I think the best approach to the bull market in agriculture is by betting on a basket of ag-related stocks. Because when farmers make a lot of money, they pour it into seeds, equipment, and fertilizer. You don't have to own the whole basket. Many of these stocks have moved, okay? But I at least want to give you some options. I've got five that I like here and a few more that I'm on the fence about. Now, let's start with Archer Daniel Midland, ADM, which now goes by ADM. Well, everyone calls it ADM. This is one of the world's top crop origination and processing plays. They sell seeds, then provide all sorts of services to farmers, from transportation to trade financing to milling. They also do just about everything to turn crops into useful products like cornstarches, ethanol, and pulp. ADM is a jack-of-all-trades for the ag, ag industry, although they have a lot of exposure to corn and soybeans in particular. I recommended ADM in January because it's a dividend aristocrat. They have boosted their payoff for 47 years in a row, not that they get any credit for that. Given that the stock's already up nearly 30% for the year, that was a pretty good call. While ADM's had a gigantic run, it still sells for less than 17 times earnings. And to be honest, I think the earnings estimates are way too low given the strength of the ag cycle. ADM's already beaten the earnings estimates for 10 straight quarters. And that was before the Russo-Ukrainian war sent the industry into overdrive. So I'm going to reiterate my buy ADM. 
Second, there's Corteva. Well, man, this was the stepchild of this ridiculous merger that finally is working off. It's the maker of seeds and pesticides that was created a few years ago when Dow Chemical merged with DuPont and then broke itself up by end market. After the spinoff, Corteva did next to nothing for over a year. And then it caught fire near the end of 2020 when the last big agricultural bull market got rolling. Now the stock's up. It's on the move again. It's up 20% for the year and regularly hitting new all-time highs. When Corteva reported its most recent uh, results in early February, the numbers were a little lackluster and the outlook was not so hot. However, not long after Russia invaded Ukraine and with the breadbasket of Europe turning into a war zone, I have to believe farmers in the rest of the world will invest in seeds and pesticides to boost production. And that's why the stock has been able to roar higher. Right now, Corteva is trading 23 times this year's earnings estimates. But while these estimates are almost certainly too low at this point, I'd still prefer to wait for a pullback before pulling the trigger. So this is buy. This is pullback. Now, how about farm equipment, meaning Deere and Agco, two stocks I like very much. Now, Deere is the largest player in the space and, and, and really the only one that gets the majority of its revenues from the United States. Thanks to the, by the way, you know why that is? It's because of tariffs all over the world. They don't tell you that. Thanks to the ag bull market, the stock keeps hitting new high after new high. Now, it doesn't hurt that even before the Russian invasion, Deere was putting up magnificent numbers. When they last reported in mid-February, they delivered a mammoth earnings beat while also raising their full-year forecast substantially. The resulting worldwide grain shortage is only going to make them stronger in the medium term, which is why Bank of America just raised their price target from 425 to 475 this morning. I would have gone to 500 if I weren't them. I think, I think they're very right, especially since they've got this new driverless tractor coming out soon that should save farmers fortunes. Remember, a lot of, of uh, having run a farm, but it just goes back and forth and back and forth, and you waste a, a guy who you have to pay a lot of money, and we can just do it by like a joystick. Even after the stock's recent run, Deere's currently selling for less than 19 times earnings, only a tiny bit higher than its historical average price to earnings multiple. I think this one's a winner. Uh, now, by the way, I think this deserves more of a premium. And if this $427 stock ever pulls back to 400 I would back up the truck. It's, it, went, it blitzed right through the 300s. All right, how about ICO? Well, you know I've been a fan of this farm equipment company, I don't know, how about a decade? But while the stock's now up nearly 20% for the year, it's still off more than 10% from its highs roughly 10 months ago. Now, Agco's got a heck of a lot cheaper. It's got much cheaper stock, by the way, than the year. 12 times estimates. So this one is much more expensive than this one. But this one's got all the sex and the pizzazz. Now, some of it is because these guys have more European exposure. The company does, it, by the way, get 3% of its sales from Russia. Some of it has been higher than that. But I don't think that justifies the enormous discount. It doesn't make any sense. Now, we know Agco delivered a tremendous set of numbers in February with an even bigger earnings beat than Deere and a truly phenomenal forecast. Don't forget they bought back a ton of stock much lower. And again, that was before Russia invaded Ukraine and crop prices exploded. Agco's got something else going for it. Like so many of the, our favorite oil stocks, they adopted a variable dividend strategy. Last year, they paid out a juicy $4 special dividend. Pretty substantial for $138 stock. Remember when this one was in the 50s and we brought a tractor outside and no one was paying any attention to us except for me? If the timing is similar this year, we should find out about the next special payout in April. Assuming it's the same as last year, that works out to be a 3.5% yield after you factor in the regular dividend. If you like this one, uh, by the way, I'm going to give you a little heads up. We are speaking to Agco's CEO later this week. Uh, I don't know if he can still go higher like when he's one or something because Agco's a non-promotional company, but it's a good company. All right, how about a retailer? Well, you know what's my favorite. I wear this hat all around Summit, New Jersey. People always say, Jim, why are you wearing that hat? Tractor Supply. I wear it because I like it. It's a long-time Kramer fave. And while it's more of a play on rural consumers, although I buy a lot of that Carhartt that everybody wears, I have a lot of Carhartt. 
Uh, I also get my ladybugs there. Um, it's a lot of industrial agriculture. That's a lot of things you need to run a farm or like, you know, gentleman gardener like I am. Even with, without the booming agriculture market, tractor supply is already a huge beneficiary from the urban rural exodus in response to the pandemic. Stock's not cheap, never has been, 24 times earnings. This puts a monstrous 77% dividend boost in January. Huge sign of confidence. And I got to tell you, their stores are pure joy in the spring. Now let's talk first. This group has caught fire since Russia invaded Ukraine. Mosaic is the second best performer in the SP 500, so I am so late to that. CF Industries is the seventh best performer, again late. Nutrient, too small to be in the SP, something more than 37%. I think it can go higher. Why? Well, Russia and its, al- and its ally, Belarus, produced nearly 40% of the world's potash, and they've been heavily sanctioned. I know, I mean, sometimes these are hard. Like, I know I'm late on these. But sometimes stocks go down, and then you grab them. But I had to wonder, maybe the fertilizers have run too much. I mean, Mosaic is up 71%, for heaven's sake. If you buy these names up here, you're betting that the sanctions on Russia and Belarus will last longer than Wall Street's expecting. I have no idea when the war will end, uh, so it's a real risk. My advice, if you want to bet on the fertilizers, recognize this short-term trade, okay? Not an investment. So be ready to ring the register quickly on the way up and prepare to cut your losses. And again, I admit that I've been late on these as opposed to the others. Here's the bottom line. We've got a raging bull market in agriculture, and the best way to play it is with a basket of stocks. And I like ADM, Corteva, Deer, Agco, and Tractor Supply. I think they're winners, and if they go down, buy even more sick and cream. Coming up, with major global exposure, can this stock just do it for investors? Or has inflationary pressure already done in the good times for Nike? Find out next. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a quandary. Wall Street's never been able to process sports, which is why I can't process the stock of Nike. The street doesn't get it because the street doesn't speak the language of sports. Look, I could go into all the surprising numbers we got from Nike last night. 87 cents of earnings per share, and also only looking for 71. 10.9 billion in revs, streets were looking for 10.6 bill. But they mean nothing in the vast scheme of things. What really matters is that when you look at the chart, it's clear Nike's largest investors have one foot out the door before the quarter. And the short sellers thought they finally cracked it once and for all. Now it feels like the shorts are playing checkers and Nike's playing chess. The company's just got so many ways to win. That's why I'm betting the stock is now out of its rut and ready for a much bigger run. Remember, Nike is first and foremost a purpose-driven business designed to make you a better athlete or at least let you idolize better athletes the same way I wanted Steve Prefontaine shoes when I was running track a gazillion years ago. Don't know Pre? Read Shoe Dog, the incredible story of Phil Knight, who started this amazing company. Knight knew who we wanted to emulate, the greatest of all time, whether it be Pre then or Jordan or LeBron, or any of the great athlete, because it sure seems that Nike has them all under contract, both men and women. Which brings me to the first sports metaphor I want to use when it comes to Nike, separation. 
All football announcers talk about the need to get separation from the defenders. You hear the term separation over and over again on Nike's magnificent conference call. If you can maintain separation, as Nike has, then you'll score every time. Nike is totally separated from its competitors, who just can't catch them. Left in the wake. Second major strength, relentless innovation. You may think you're buying sneakers when you buy Nikes. You'd be wrong. You're buying a tech delivery system, including a proprietary platform of shoes that are built with something called interlocking modules that connect the pieces of shoes without glue, allowing for an eight-minute assembly, a fraction of the time it takes to make a traditional sneaker. Yet another source of separation. I know there's a lot of concern that the footlockers of the world aren't going to get the right shoes from Nike, but I submit that what Nike cares about is the customer, not the venue where shoes are sold. Believe me, if Nike needed Foot Locker to move its merchandise, they'd be all in on Foot Locker. The reality is they don't really need them. Customers increasingly want to buy their shoes online with a digital app, so Nike's spending a fortune on its direct-to-consumer digital business. Why deal with a middleman when you don't have to? Although they will satisfy Foot Locker's demand somewhat because there's nothing wrong with having a presence in the mall. Just like Apple, Nike's all about the customer first, not the shareholder and certainly not the retail vendors. No wonder Tim Cook is on the board of the company. Cook and Nike CEO John Donahoe share values as if they were twins. Oh, and stay tuned for the Ted Lasso show. Honestly, there's so much in this Nike conference call about what customers might want that it's ridiculous to worry over how they'll get their favorite shoes or where they'll get them. Hey, listen, they're going to get them wherever's most convenient. Finally, my ultimate takeaway, Nike, even after all these years, is cool. Cool to the point that it won some honor in China for being the coolest brand. There's that separation again. The Chinese government is not exactly keen on American companies, but some brands are so big that they transcend national borders, and Nike's brand is one of them. Here's the bottom line. None of this would mean anything if Nike weren't having a terrific spring. They are. Or if they had manufacturing problems. They aren't. Or serious supply chain. The supply chain was the only issue is they've got a problem in the U.S., and they're going to fix that. If Nike's run out of style, I'd be worried. But these are shoes that go up in value after buy them, for heaven's sake. Consider it a blessing. Their biggest issue is not too much supply. It's way too much demand. Charles and George, Charles. Good day to you, Mr. Kramer. What's going on? Okay, Yeti Holdings. Last three years, May through September time frame, the stock has performed well. The company's announced a $100 million share buyback. Uh, it's way off its highs, and it's had strong sequential, strong sequential earnings growth. Do you like it here? Your position is just like Ben Stoto, which, by the way, rhymes with photo, who is our research director, and he likes Yeti very much, and I am with you. I, my Yeti cooler is a little too heavy, but it really works. It, it's heavy. They're very heavy. They're very heavy. You got some informed com- uh, input from someone who works on the floor, namely my executive producer. Let's go to Dave, also in Georgia. We have Texas, Texas, then we got Georgia, Georgia. Dave in Georgia, Dave. Hey, Kramer. Yeah. yeah um, I'm interested in Peloton. With okay, all right, CEO. all right. Okay, here's, here's yeah, look. The new CEO and right. the new supply chain strategy, do you see uptime at today's stock price? Okay, when, it, when you know Barry McCarthy was uh, was appointed CEO when the stock was at twenty seven, and I changed my mind and said instead of putting the hate on Peloton, I now like Peloton because Barry McCarthy is one tough guy, and that's what they needed. They needed a tough person to come in and take out the costs and straighten things out, and that's Barry. I wouldn't get in the way of Barry from left Peloton. Barry's one mean. Why he's a good man. Let's go to Brandon. In my home state, New Jersey, Brandon. 
Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Greetings from the Jersey Shore. First time caller, long time. Holy cow, I'm an Ocean Grove man from way back. What's up? Come on. Thank you for all you do. Love your Twitter feed as much as I love this show. Hey, I'm hitting guys again. I took a little break, but then my doctor told me that he liked the hit, so I'm right back. Hey, look out, jokers. My doctor says it's the right thing you do. And I know, yeah, Jimmy was up today. Ooh, good, good, good. And by the way, AMC Fabulous, you're down so big. Go ahead. I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> Love it. My question is about Callaway Golf. I purchased this after the dip when they acquired Top Golf, and right. been adding to that regularly. They peaked last May and gone down ever since. There's been some recent insider buys that's giving me hope. What's the story here? Am I, I like your call. Nice I think I think a lot of people got out of this because they felt that it was a, a pandemic name. Well, I mean, it's ridiculous. Golf is a sport that people love, and I think it's way too low. And I think you're right to want to buy it. Nike's biggest issue, wow, high-quality problem, too much demand and not enough supply. All right, much more man money, including my schools with Bausch Health, which has been kind of just okay for the club, but don't worry. I think we got something cooking here because you could be clearer for the eye eye care maker. I got the CEO. Then wheat and corn prices, what a drag. Ah, you am worried about famine, so we're going off the charts in those two commodities. See what the future could hold. And oil calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Last year, we learned that Bausch Health Companies, the former artist we like to say is formerly known as Valiant, plans to break itself up into three different businesses, spinning off Sultan Medical for aesthetics and Bausch and Loan for eye care. And now I love these breakup stories. You know that. And after discussing the company's plans with management in December, we swiftly bought Bausch Health for the Charitable Trust, recommended the stock on the show. Since then, though, it's kind of drifted slightly lower. Why? Because Bausch wanted to spin off these two divisions via IPOs, and the IPO market is frozen over. Sooner or later, I think they'll be able to deliver, leaving you with a very solid drug company. But how long will we have to wait? Let's check in with Joe Papa, the turnaround artist chairman and CEO of Bausch Health Companies, to get a better sense of the story. Mr. Papa, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. It's great to be with you. All right, so, Joe, I know the IPO markets are frozen, but sometimes when you have really unbelievably good businesses, this is the ideal time. You'll get all the focus. There's nothing else in the pipe. You'll have complete attention of Wall Street. Why not do this now? Yeah, Jim, we are looking at this every day. We are working with our advisors. We think we have great advisors. Uh, We have really, I think, two priorities, I would say. We want to move as expeditiously as we can. And number two, we want to maximize shareholder value creation. Uh, what we're looking for is, I'm going to use the word appropriate market conditions, market conditions that we track every day when we look at the, the volatility index or the VIX. Uh, we also, we've seen it's come down. It was 36 and it's now improved down to somewhere in the 23 range, right. I think. Uh, also, we're looking at the market and we're looking at as values improve and the overall market values improve. We're looking for that as another metric that we're following. And I will say over the last seven days, it's getting better. So, you know, we keep our fingers crossed as to when we can go forward. But the good news for this, Jim, is that while we are remaining together as one company, we are generating a significant amount of cash. And as you know, that cash that we're generating will help us to pay down the debt that we have. So it's it's good that we're continuing to pay down debt. But clearly, uh, we are viewing this opportunity to create three great companies 
as really the long-term game plan to unlock shareholder value. And, and that's what we want to do. We want to maximize the shareholder value creation and then clearly, obviously, move as expeditiously as possible. All right, well, let's uh, we have fingers crossed. We, but we let me move. ask you, Joe, RBC, which is a complimentary firm, they value the Bausch Pharma business at negative 70 cents, Joe. Do you really think that that's, that's not value creation last I looked? Well, you know, I, I can't comment about any individual analyst model, but what I will say is that I do think as you look at the sum of the parts of what Bausch & Lomb is worth, what the Solta Medical Aesthetics business is worth, you know, we've looked at it in terms of Bausch & Lomb at the peer companies, and they're trading at EBITDA multiples twice what Bausch Health is trading at today. Uh, same comment for the Solta Medical Aesthetics business. We look at the peer companies they're trading at, you know, significantly higher multiples than where Bausch Health and Total Company is trading. So uh, our belief is that we separate these three businesses and then create a global diversified Bausch Pharma business. Uh, our view is that all of these businesses will create shareholder value creation, especially as we unlock the sum of the parts. Well, I want to talk about health, about eye care for a second. Uh, the the sure. notion of young people with myopic eye problems is something that no one else talks about. You've got the floor on that. I think that young people and parents should listen to what you have to say. Yeah, unfortunately, this is a continuing, we can call it a myopia or nearsighted epidemic. Uh, what we are seeing right now is that the incidence, especially I'll use the U.S. statistics, has gone from 20% myopia in the 1950 time frame to somewhere close to 40% today, and it's on its way to 50%. And the the view we have is that what we believe part of the problem is that children, especially younger children, are spending a lot more time with video games, computer games, uh, indoors with iPads and iPhones, and less time outdoors. And we think that is a contributory factor to the myopia that we're seeing in terms of the programs that we are seeing with all the time they spend on the video screens, that's what we think is contributing to this. Our view uh, as a company is we're going to clearly help children uh, with contact lenses if needed. But importantly, we're going to look at pharmaceutical products. Uh, We have one under development right now that will help delay the progression of myopia for children. So we're going to attack the myopia problem uh, as many ways as we can. We think that's one of the integrated platform opportunities that Bausch and Lomb has that we think is very exciting for the future. Okay, my feeling is is that the one that is most undervalued is your dermatological, your salt business. And the reason I say that is because yep. the those businesses, the derm offices, are just now beginning to open because those were places where people felt you'd get COVID and it could have been delayed. What are you hearing from the dermatologists about what's going on in those businesses right now? Yeah, the Solta Medical Aesthetics business is doing extraordinarily well. And we, we view a lot of this, Jim, towards what's happened even during the COVID timeframe as many of us sat in front of computer screens and saw that high definition. And we said to ourselves, How, when did I get that old looking on this high definition screen? And I think that's one of the things that happened here that people have termed it the Zoom culture as we all looked at it. But I think people are making the investment in the medical aesthetic side of the business. I, I do think that people view the Solta business especially very valuable here because they could do it in a non-invasive, non-surgical approach uh, to doing the aesthetics of improving their facial appearances, as an example with our thermage that uh, has done extraordinarily well. The compound annual growth rate of that from a revenue point of view over the last four years has been somewhere 
in that 30 plus percent range. So uh, it's clearly growing and we see a really bright future for medical aesthetics. Well, look, I just think this obviously would not have bought it from my travel trust and not told club members to be in it if I did not feel this company was worth substantial and that the, the actual uh, Bausch, Bausch and Lowe, uh, the old Bausch and Lowe business, just that, I think is worth the price of the stock. I would love to see these pieces come public, Joe, because I think that they're undervalued and they very quickly go to, I mean, come on. The, when you look at a some company like a beauty health how can beauty health be worth more than sales? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, beauty health be more than salt. It doesn't make any sense to me. So it's time, Joe. It's time. We, we you don't think I know more than those guys? You're paying those guys millions, Joe. I am telling you there's nothing in the pipe. We want to hear from you about these three great businesses. Well, we're excited, Jim. We're excited to get them out. We we are making all the things that need to happen internally happen. Uh, we're doing all the filings. We had to file the fourth quarter financials, of course, as you know, with the SEC. Uh, that has in the, is in the process of occurring right now. So we're ready. Uh, we just want to make sure that we're doing it with the appropriate market conditions to, to drive that shareholder value. And as I said, move as expeditiously as we can. So we're getting ready and we're, we're ready to cross that threshold. Well, our shareholders are ready. Joe Papa, thank you so much for coming to the show. Joe Papa is the chairman and CEO of Bausch Health Companies, soon to be three companies. Joe, it's great to see you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Jim. Have a great day. Man Money's back here for the break. Just chill out. Is this Chill Master Jay? The Chill Man is in the house. He's happy. The lightning round is coming up when Mad Money returns. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, Dad, tell the lightning round. Let's start with Clayton in Florida. Clayton. Hey, Jim. Uh, just curious to see what you think about Cano Health. I think very little of it. you got so many different companies you can pick. Let's buy CVS, okay? Let's just do CVS. That's much better. How about Brett in Texas? Brett. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Booyah. Thank you for asking. Booyah right back. Hey, uh, reason for my call, C- uh, CCJ's ticker, Cameco. What Cameco. Do you think? Everyone wants uranium. Everybody wants uranium. You know what? I'm going to bless it. It's like I should have blessed the Starbolt carrier and Zim. I'm going to put uranium on the list as three things that you can roll the dice and it's going to come up good. I need to go to Robert in New Jersey. Robert. Yes, I am here. Jim, I was just wondering if you could give me a little insight into a company called Thor Industries. Well, the problem with Thor is that people have decided there's no doubt about it. It was a pandemic play. These are all these pseudo-pandemic plays that keep getting hurt, man. Throwing in Williams-Sonoma. I like Thor here, but I'm not bucking the trend. Bud in Ohio, Bud. Booyah, Ski Daddy. This Booyah. is your longtime fan, Bud, in beautiful Akron, Ohio. How are I you today? always thought that about Akron. It's underrated chronically. What's going on? Well, you know, Jim, I always take your advice very seriously, and I've been looking to find companies that are preferably U.S. domestic, profitable, and return cash to shareholders since my family has certainly felt the effects of the inflation that's been building the past 14 months. So I'd like your opinion on a pin action play that could greatly benefit from the fact that Intel is going to be spending $20 billion building factories on my doorstep in central Ohio. Do you still like Huntington Bank? H-Ban? I like H-Ban very much. And by the way, I like First Rise when nobody liked it. Hey, where are they now? You know what? They're like, they bought AMC at 40. 
Now we're going to Lakshmi in Colorado. Lakshmi. Hey, Jim. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thanks for putting me on the show. Yeah, I have a question about a stock. That's name is IOT Samsara. Yeah, you know, get, when you do these tracking companies, you're up against just too many, uh, too competitive. It's too competitive. I'm going to have to say XNA on that one. Let's go to Kevin in Virginia. Kevin. Booyah, Kramer. Kevin Booyah. in Fairfax, Virginia. All right. Jim, I was just looking at the three-month chart of Micron and noticed a bullish inverse head and shoulders pattern. I saw that myself when I was going over the Micron notes because, you know, they're reporting. They're reporting very soon on the 29th. And I say, bye, Micron. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Tonight, I want to talk about a word that you often don't hear me talk about in the modern era. Famine. We spent a lot of time dealing with the three other horsemen of the apocalypse, but in the developed world, famine is not a 21st century problem. Or at least it wasn't. Thanks to the stalled Russian invasion of Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe, and the ensuing sanctions on Russia, also a big wheat exporter, there are vast swaths of the globe that could soon struggle to find bread. And even in places that remain well-supplied, wheat prices have gone through the roof. It's no longer affordable. Of course, commodities tend to be pretty volatile by their very nature. But at the moment, the action is downright psychotic, in large part because commodity markets are driven by massive amounts of leverage, people buying and selling with borrowed money. It's not just grains, energy, and precious metals that have gone nuts, too. Just a roller coaster of greed and fear that's created an absurd level of volatility that's hurting people all over the globe. Now, you can blame the crazy commodity action on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but that's only part of the story. The thing about commodity markets is that there's tons of financial trading that's utterly disconnected from the actual underlying fundamentals, which means you can't truly get your head around these moves unless you're familiar with the market mechanics. So tonight I want to focus on grain. Grain, because it's a staple. Skyrocketing bread prices almost always create geopolitical turbulence. Historically, it's the number one cause of revolution. Of course, food inflation is also a huge deal for the economy and the stock market. But there's a reason that famine is one of the four horsemen. So we're going to go off the charts with the help of Carly Garner, a brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, because she is our resident commodities experts. expert. First, though, you need to understand the fundamental backdrop here. Thanks to the war and the ensuing sanctions on Russia, the price of wheat has skyrocketed because Ukraine and Russia collectively account for a third of the world's wheat production. We talk about oil and gas all the time, but there's a third. Fortunately, the current crop was in the ground before the invasion, but it's hard to cultivate crops in a war zone, especially when the price of oil and gas is going through the roof. But even if Ukrainian farmers can harvest the wheat, they normally ship it through ports on the Black Sea, many of which are now occupied by Russia or under siege. In other words, this is how you get a bread shortage. Now, let's, take, let's, let's talk history. Take a look at the monthly chart of wheat futures. This is going back 60 years. Garner points out that, like most commodities, wheat tends to trade sideways until something goes wrong and it spikes into the stratosphere. Let's see if we can see some of these. For the last 50-odd years, wheat mostly bounced between $3 and $6 per bushel. Even during the early 70s commodities boom, it only rallied to 6 bucks. a move it repeated in the mid-90s. It wasn't until 2008 that we saw an insane spike that comes close to the current action. 
You might not remember, but in 2008, before the financial crisis really exploded, we had a gigantic boom market in commodities. Coal was up all, all the time. Thanks to the unusually dry weather in the United States, massively higher oil prices, and the opening of illiquid overnight electronic grain trading, the price of wheat temporarily jumped to $13 a bushel. Now, thanks to the Russian invasion, we revisited that level, although Garner says that the move up this time was even faster and more disorderly. That's partly because futures exchanges set price limits on how much a particular commodity can move up in a single session. And this creates some weird dynamics. For example, when wheat is locked limit up, that's the term, meaning it's gone as far as it can go in one day, the short sellers have their back against the wall. They can't exit their positions because nobody wants to sell at the limit price. So they're trapped until the next day. The first full week after the war began, we got a series of days where wheat was locked limit up, creating a sense of panic among the shorts. Garner believes that was a huge driver of wheat's run from 860 to 1360, with very little trading right there. Although since then, things have calmed down. The price has pulled back a couple bucks. Now take a look at the weekly chart of the wheat futures, coupled with CFTC's commitments of traders data, the COT report. Remember, this is the report that shows you the net positions of small speculators, large speculators, and commercial hedgers, meaning small-time investors, institutional money managers, and businesses that need to buy and sell actual wheat. Here, Garner's noticed something very interesting. Due to all those locked limit-up trading sessions, large speculators haven't been able to get long wheat. The buying on the way up is dominated by massive short squeeze. But even after a few weeks, money managers have only just begun to nibble at wheat. They're currently net long by just 12,000 contracts, which is a very small position. According to Garner, in the past, they can go up to 50,000, which is where she expects, before running out of firepower. In short, if institutional money managers want to bet on weed here, they've still got a ton of dry powder. Can you imagine this? They haven't done it yet. Look where we are. And Garner is pretty darn confident the prices are headed higher. Check out the daily chart of the May wheat futures. After peaking on March 8th, this is some chart. Come on, isn't this amazing? Uh, after six limit up moves, six wheat futures have pulled back hard. Garner points out that this decline represents a 50% retracement of the rally that began in early February, but the pullback stopped above wheat's 20-day moving average. Okay, so this is really important because at the same time, the relative strength index, which is a very important momentum indicator, has retreated from overbought territory while staying positive, which suggests that wheat's got more room to run. As long as it holds above its floor of support at $10.30 a bushel, which is down roughly 90 cents from here, Garner believes we can make another run in its highs over the coming weeks or months. I don't think our, I don't think our supermarkets around the world can handle this. I just don't. That's wheat. What about corn? Well, Ukraine only accounts for 4% of global output. No trader wants to sell corn when the wheat board is lighting up. So take a look at the monthly chart of the May corn futures. Here we go again. This is corn that's used for animal feed and biofuels. While corn didn't explode higher with the onset of the Russian invasion, it still rallied hard because the skyrocketing price of oil translates into more demand for corn-based ethanol. I'm telling you, this whole complex is a disaster, people. If history's any guide, Garner thinks the corn rally could be on its last leg. But the last leg can still be a doozy. Right now, the corn futures are roughly $7.50 per bushel, with a ceiling of resistance at $7.70. If corn can break out above that ceiling, Garner believes it can retest its all-time highs near $8.50. She doesn't expect corn to burst through that level. But if it somehow manages to keep roaring, then she doesn't see any more resistance until 10 dollars 
That would be a new record. If corn gets to that level, it means we're dealing with an insane level of inflation. And Fed Chief Jay Powell may need to go nuclear on the economy to get things under control, even though you might say, come on, this is plants. But the bottom line, unless Vladimir Putin throws in the towel or drops dead or Zelensky compromises, the charts, as interpreted by Carly Garner, suggest that both wheat and corn prices are headed higher here, maybe much higher. And that is the last thing we want to see. But we might have to get used to it. I like to say that there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.